The rest of you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. If you uh, do not have uh, a Bible with you, you can use one from the pew rack in front of you. And if you're unfamiliar with the location of Ephesians chapter 6, it's on page 1160, 1160, <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. If you're with us for the first time this Sunday, we're glad that you're here. We are in uh, the middle, near the end actually, of a sermon series on Ephesians that we've been in since last September, and uh, we are getting excited about almost finishing it here. Ephesians 6.10. So today we come to the really the climax of the second half of the letter. The first half of the letter climaxed with the message about Christ's love for us, and, and this one is climaxing the second half, chapters 4 through 6, about the spiritual war in which we are engaged. It's one of the most beloved uh, texts in the Bible, and, and so we come to a great passage to dive into this morning. Let me, let me just uh, read it for you, Ephesians 6, starting Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may take your stand, so you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, Words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you with our minds focused on this Christmas season. We see the Advent candle lit here. We see the decorations up. And we thank you, Jesus, that you came into this world but we recognize that when you came into that manger as a little baby, you didn't come to be the, the subject of Hallmark greetings. You came as an invading conqueror to take back your world. That you came into this dark world that's filled with brokenness, dysfunction, betrayal and war and suffering and death. You came to take back which was rightfully yours, this creation. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you came to bring the kingdom of God. And we're here this morning because you have conquered us and subdued us and brought us into the kingdom of God. And I pray this morning, Jesus, that you would reign supreme. I pray that you would be visible to every heart. I pray, Lord Christ, that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you but is interested and wants to learn more, that Christ, you would reveal yourself to them so that they might see your beauty. That you would invade our lives, Lord, and take back the ground that has been lost to sin over the years. Make us part of your dominion, part of your kingdom. Lord Jesus, reign now through the preaching of your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
So why is the Christian life <clears throat> so difficult? Why is it such a pain to follow Jesus? It, it really is hard. Anyone who thinks that when you become a Christian, life is going to get easier, you know, I'm sorry to, to uh, uh, burst your bubble, but it's hard being a Christian. Why is it so easy for me to be arrogant or prideful or um, unforgiving and, and self-righteous, but it's so hard to be humble and forgiving and repentant? I mean, why is it that way? Why is it that... Um, uh, I can stay up at night anxious, worrying about things, grinding my teeth, you know, wake up in the morning with a sore jaw, tossing and turning, and, and I, I can worry about everything. That comes so naturally to me, but it's so hard to put my faith in Jesus and trust Him and be at peace. Why is that hard? Why is it so much easier to stretch the truth than it is just to state the truth? Why is it so much easier to let my heart be consumed with desires for possessions, whether it be cars or computers or clothes, or, or let my heart get obsessed with a relationship or with uh, a food or drink, alcohol, things like that. Well, why is it so easy to be obsessed with those things and so hard to keep my affections centered on Jesus Christ and, and stay in love with Him? These other things just come naturally, but Jesus is like constantly being knocked off course. Why is it so difficult to live the Christian life. Uh, we've been studying Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. Those of you who have been with us, you, know, you remember that Ephesians 1 through 3 are about who we are in Jesus. And Ephesians 4 through 6, generally speaking, are therefore, how should we live if this is who we are in Christ? We are now this new person in Christ, so let's live like it. And, and so throughout chapters 4 through 6, we have all these wonderful instructions we've been studying about how to follow Christ. Uh, we've been studying how to be godly husbands, how to be godly wives, all the aspects that should mark a Christian. And yet it's so difficult to live this way. It's not easy. It doesn't seem to come as naturally as I wish that it would. Why is it that way? You know, there are skeptics who doubt Christianity, and, and one of the, the arguments they level against Christianity is, well, Christianity you know, is a crutch for weak people. That, that, that if you can't get along in life, then you need... Christianity to help you as a crutch. I don't know what they're talking about. As I haven't found this to be a crutch. I, I mean, God helped me, certainly, but I found in many ways it's very difficult to follow Christ. It, it's hard. Try it. It's hard. It's much easier just to go along with the ways of the world and live how everyone else lives instead to, to stand out like a, a freak, like a religious fanatic, because I, I want to follow Christ. It's a difficult kind of life. So why is it so hard? And today as we come to Ephesians chapter 6.10, we find one of the reasons that living for Christ is so hard. It's because following Christ is a spiritual war. That to be a Christian is to be engaged constantly in conflict from the day you come to Christ until the day you go home to be with the Lord and you die. You are in a constant state of spiritual warfare. For the Christian, there is no R&R. Uh, &R. For the Christian, there is no time off the battlefield. We live, sleep, uh, eat, drink, uh, do our lives in the midst of a great spiritual conflict. In other words, it's not just that I have a, a, a sin nature in me, a proclivity towards sin that makes Christianity so hard. The Bible calls this the flesh. It's not just that I have the flesh. Nor is it just that there's a culture around me 
that militates against my Christian faith. The Bible calls this the world. It's not just that there's the flesh and the world, but behind the world lies a spiritual realm that is hostile to my faith. This is something we learn in Scripture. There is a realm of spiritual forces that are energizing the world and energizing my flesh against my faith. I am in a spiritual war. And so it, we read here in our text today, Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, is what we're studying. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's the first command. Second command in verse 11, put on the full armor of God. This is a fight we're in. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now I realize that when we read that word devil, a lot of you guys kind of scratch your heads and go, the devil, huh? Huh. You know, do, do we really believe in the devil? We can, can modern, educated, scientific people believe in evil spirits and, and demons? Isn't this, this kind of the stuff of horror flicks? Uh, the de devils and demons and Satan, you know, come on. Didn't they just believe in that back in the old days when uh, they didn't know how to understand the evil around them, and so they came up with this mythology of Satan in order to help them get their minds around the evil that they experienced in life. In fact, look at your sermon notes for a minute, which is this little insert in your bulletin, Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, it says on the front. It's interesting stats. Uh, I, I pulled this off the net. From George Barna, who's a pollster about religious things, he focuses specifically on Christianity and religion in America. According to a 2001 George Barna poll, nearly three out of five adults, about 58%, say that the devil or Satan is not a living being, but is a symbol of evil. In fact, 45% of people who identify themselves as born-again Christians on this survey deny Satan's existence. So I, I think there's this majority of Americans. If we were to vote, a vote today among Americans, is Satan a real being, an entity with an intelligence, you know, the vote would be, no, he's not. And that's how America would vote, I guess. I, I guess that's how you read those things. Uh, I mean, isn't Satan and demons just what they used to call mental illness back in the old days? Before they knew about mental illness, before they knew about uh, neurochemistry, they, they, would, they didn't know how to deal with a person who was having a psychotic episode. And so they would say, well, that person's having a, a, a demonic spirit, and we need to cast the evil spirit out. And they didn't understand what the person really needed was some kind of uh, a drug to help balance out their brain chemistry. I mean, isn't that really what it is? Well, I'm sure in the Middle Ages, there were some, or, or way back then, I'm sure there were people who had, were mentally ill or had uh, uh, some kind of chemical uh, disorder in their the neurons or whatever, that, and, and that people thought that was demonic spirits. But my friends, there are people today who are being diagnosed mentally ill who may actually have a spiritual problem. There are probably people today in institutions whose problem is not so much chemical as it is spiritual. Because the reality is that the demonic and Satan and evil spirits and all that stuff, unfortunately, is real. This is real stuff. It's not make pretend, it's, it's not make believe, it's not just Hollywood. It, it's real. If you are a biblical Christian, and by that I mean a Christian who is trying to form your beliefs and, and life by the Bible, I think it's safe to say you, you pretty much have to believe in the demonic and, and in the reality of Satan. 
Because throughout the New Testament, Christ and, and the apostles teach about Satan not as some abstract symbol, but as a reality. As real as this pulpit right here. A real entity who's out there. A Jesus' ministry was healing the sick. Jesus' ministry was teaching to the multitudes. It was casting out demons. And it's all just presented as historical fact. These are real entities. Uh, unfortunately, things like exorcisms are real. I know some of you are going to be going like, what is this guy talking It's real. I mean, if you want to, I can introduce you to people in the church who've been in encounters like that. I mean, there's, it's real stuff. It actually happens, unfortunately. <clears throat> but you know, Americans are finding this out, even Americans who don't believe the Bible. Uh, in our postmodern culture, people are increasingly um, uh, dabbling in spiritual things. Uh, where America has sort of moved into a postmodern, post-scientific uh, framework philosophically, and people are dabbling in the occult. And people are dabbling in witchcraft and shamanism. And, and you know what you find is, is when you pull on the, the string of shamanism or witchcraft, something pulls back. And you'll find that. And so people are finding this out on their own. Unfortunately, they're finding it out the wrong way. This is all too real. And in, in this last century, I mean, haven't we seen manifestations of evil that defy naturalistic explanations? I love this quote on uh, the front of the sermon notes from James Dunn, who's a, uh, a brilliant New Testament scholar, talking about the biblical understanding of spirits he says, even in a post-religious world, even a post-religious world reaches instinctively for religious language when confronted with the reality of evil whose malignity and captivating power goes far beyond human comprehension. A 20th century which had hoped that the Holocaust of the early 1940s was a horrific throwback to barbarous pre-civilization has been appalled by the genocidal massacres, ethnic cleansing of Bosnia and Rwanda 50 years later. One could easily speak of demonic forces of nationalism and tribalism let loose in those countries without being accused of overstatement. So hard to comprehend are the forces which compel so many to rape, torture, and murder, apparently without compunction. Unfortunately, it is real. The reason the Christian life is so difficult is that I am not only opposed by my own flesh, I'm not only opposed by the world system of values that I see on TV and radio and advertisement, but behind it all lurks a, a real spiritual realm of spirits that, that are actually opposing and fighting against my Christian life. Um, what is this enemy like? Look back at our text. Notice three things about this enemy that we face. The first is that this is a subtle enemy. It's a subtle enemy. Look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He's a schemer. Satan is crafty. He's a planner. He's a malevolent intelligence of the highest order. And his mind out can outthink us. I mean, you can't play chess with Satan. He wins. He's smarter and he's so subtle. Uh, he's a master of deception. He's a master of lies. Remember what the Bible calls him, the father of lies? Uh, you know, Satan doesn't come to us in a big red cape with a pitchfork. You know, poof, ha-ha, I'm Satan. You know, do what I say. Mm -hmm. he, he doesn't do that. Because obviously we'd go, oh, well, there's Satan. I'm not going to do what he says. It's not, he, he's the serpent. 
And he, you know, what serpents do is they, they sneak through the underbrush, and you never see them until they strike, and then it's over. That's how Satan works. He, he knows us. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your fears. He knows your past issues and your hang-ups. He just pushes your buttons, knows exactly how to work you. It's, it's incredible. In fact, look at, uh, again, your sermon notes on the inside. I got a big box here with some quotes from the Puritans. By the way, if you want to learn about spiritual warfare, read the Puritans. Okay? I, I don't, I, there's a lot of stuff on spiritual warfare out there today, and I don't know how any other way to say this. I don't know how to say it nicely, except that a lot of the stuff on spiritual warfare that's pandered about among Christian circles is just kooky. It's really kooky stuff. But if you really want to know what spiritual warfare is, I, I would direct you back 400 years to the Puritans. These guys understood it. Uh, read William Gurnall's The Christian in Complete Armor. Read Thomas Brooks' uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. That's the real stuff. And so here's some Puritan quotes on the enemy. Look at the first one there. Uh, William Jenkins, who's a Puritan pastor, talking about Satan's subtlety. He says, The devil shapes himself to the fashions of all men. If he meets with a proud man or a prodigal man, then he makes himself a flatterer. If a covetous man, then he comes with a reward in his hand. He hath an apple for Eve, a grape for Noah, a change of raiment for Gehazi, a bag for Judas. He can dish out his meats for all palaces. He hath a lash to fit every shoe. He hath something to please all conditions. Well, look at the, the, the first sentence of this next quote from Thomas Brooks. I just love this line. Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and inclinations. He knows us. He's been doing this for millennia. He knows how to push our buttons. He knows how to work us. He's an incredibly subtle master of manipulation. But not only is he subtle, look at another aspect of our enemy from the text. He's not only subtle, the second thing is he's spiritual. In other words, he's not corporeal. He, he's not a physical enemy. He's a, a, an invisible enemy. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our enemy, friends, is not the Unitarians. It's a spiritual enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and here we go, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the heavenly realms is that spiritual dimension that surrounds us, that's very real, but we can't see it because it's a different type of realm. I, I, you know, I don't know what it is because I'm not in that realm, really. I'm, I'm in this physical realm. But, but it's around us. So it's a spiritual enemy. It's an unseen enemy. You know, we can fight Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is a physical enemy. You can hunt the enemy down. They're very slippery, but you can find them. You can arrest them. You can cut off their funds. You can, you can kill them. But, but where do you find Satan? Where is he? You know? And even if I could find him, how do I, how do I fight him? Where is the spiritual enemy? And so it's, it's very difficult. And the fact is that, that we therefore tend to take Satan less seriously. We tend to take things like you know, tumors and uh, layoffs and uh, terrorist threats and problems with people at work. We tend to take that very seriously. But, but we tend not to take Satan seriously because we don't see him. And yet he's far more dangerous. In fact, another Puritan quote, look at the bottom of your handout. This one by Thomas Adams. 
He says, page two at the bottom, let us watch Satan, for he watcheth us. There is no corporeal enemy, but a man naturally fears. The spiritual foe, though, appears less terrible because we are less sensible of him. Great conquerors have been chronicled for victories and extensions of their kingdoms. Satan is beyond them all. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, but Satan his millions. So not only do we face a subtle enemy, we face a spiritual enemy. And if that's not bad enough, number three, we face a stalwart enemy. In other words, a powerful enemy. Look at verse 12 again, and look at the titles that are used to describe the forces of evil. Verse 12, our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers, against the forces. Rulers, authorities, powers, forces. These are titles of power and dominion and strength. We don't stand a chance. Satan is not only stronger than us, I mean smarter than us, he's not only invisible to our senses, but he's also more powerful than we are. This is not good. In fact, look back at chapter 2 of Ephesians. Just flip back there real quick. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Here's another place where we hear about the power of our enemy. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, here we go, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And this is important to understand. You don't have to be in a satanic cult wearing a pentagram with black fingernail polish to be controlled by the devil. You just have to be disobedient. You could be a rich, successful executive driving a Mercedes-Benz who just doesn't give a rip about Christ. And you're just as much under the control of Satan. He's just using you through different ways as the person who's in a cult or something like that. You just have to be disobedient to Christ and live your own life on your own terms because he is a powerful enemy. And so... No wonder the Christian life is so hard. We are opposed by an enemy with a subtlety beyond our intelligence who is spiritual, and number three, who is stalwart, who has more power. I mean, how can we possibly stand against this enemy? Our situation is very much like in um, The Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, yeah, Lord, you know, the, the third movie is coming out soon, and so... Uh, I, I'm starting to get revved up here for the, the, the final movie in the trilogy, and I'm, it's going to start coming into the sermons. So I might as well start now. Um, <laughs> but you know, in the, if, you've ever, if you've seen the second movie, The Two Towers, or read the book, which is even better, you know that one of the, the important parts of, of that story is the centerpiece is, is the Battle of Helm's Deep. And if you don't know what any of this is, Helm's Deep in this story is a fortress. It's a fortress owned by a group of people called the Rohirrim, who are war, uh, warriors who ride horses. And whenever the Rohirrim are in trouble, they, they run to Helm's Deep. That's like their stronghold. Helm's Deep is a big box canyon, and at the end of it is a wall that no one's ever breached with a big tower. And so in times of trouble, the Rohirrim, they go to Helm's Deep and they're safe. Well, this is in the story, it's one of those times of trouble. And so a few of the ragtag remnants of the Rohirrim flee to Helm's Deep. There's a couple hundred of them. They're standing there, and the enemy is marching up. And, and if you know the story of uh, Tolkien, it's, the enemy is orcs. And it, you don't know what an orc is. It's, it's like a big monster. You're like, Bleh! you know, and they got you know, armor and swords. And you know, they're just kind of a big, nasty monster with swords. And, and there's, so there's a couple hundred men on the walls, 
and there's 10,000 orcs. It's, it's pitch black. If you've seen the movie, it's an incredible scene. It's like pitch black, it's dark, it's raining, and they're like, rawr, 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 you know, marching up, and their, their swords are clattering, and they have their torches and their sword, and their armor's clanking, and they're growling and snarling. And you see these like 200 guys up on the walls, you know, just looking down at this ocean of, of, of an enemy. And I thought, man, that's where we're at. We're just a few hundred soldiers here at South Shore Baptist Church, you know, standing here on our watch. And, and we're trying to oppose thousands upon ten thousands of spiritual forces around us that f- would far overwhelm us. I mean, how in the world do we seriously think we're going to personally make progress in the Christian life with an enemy like that? How in, uh, who said that? <laughs> Someone said Jesus. Don't give it away. Uh, how in the world... <laughs> this is preaching. I'm trying to build up to a climax. <laughs> this is a rhetorical device. Um, how in the world are we supposed to, uh, to, uh, to hold a church together? I mean, how, how do churches keep from just splintering in divisions and falling apart? How in the world do we think we're supposed to go out to the south shore of Boston and to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel with that kind of an enemy arrayed against us? And the answer is, there you go. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it says in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. It must come from Him. If we have any hope at all of winning and standing firm in this spiritual battle in which we are engaged, give up hope in your own powers. Give up hope in your own righteousness and religion. Don't put your trust in any religious rituals you've undertaken. Don't put your trust in your good deeds. Put your trust completely in the Lord Jesus Christ, or else you are toast in this battle. Because it's only through His power and His strength that we have any hope of standing firm. Otherwise, the enemy's just going to sweep over us like 10,000 orcs over the walls of Helm's Deep. It's only Christ. And why is it that we must trust in Christ? Because he's the only one who's ever taken down the enemy. No one else has. There's no shamanism that can control Satan. There, there is no meditation or chanting that can control Satan. There are no rosary beads that can control Satan. The only one who's ever conquered Satan, trampled him into the dust, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did it through his death on the cross. Through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus Christ has conquered our enemy. He has crushed the devil's head. He has broken the serpent's back. He is the victor. Christus Victor is who we worship. And so, uh, look at your sermon notes. Oh, so many great texts. Look on page three. Christ is the victor. There's so many passages in the Bible that talk about this warfare aspect of Jesus' ministry. Because when we think of the cross, we usually emphasize, and rightly so, we typically emphasize that Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins, which is true. And that is really what we should emphasize. When Jesus died on the cross, he washed away our sins. And so if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be saved, if you want to be a Christian, you need to trust in Christ. Not in this church, not in me, not in any church, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's through his death on the cross that he washes away sins. But there's another facet of the diamond of salvation. 
that if you turn it and look at it, it's the facet of warfare. That on the cross, Christ not only saved my soul, he also defeated my worst enemy. So look at um, page three of the sermon notes, that first quote there from Luke 11. This is when Jesus just did an exorcism. And people are saying, like, how does he do this exorcism? And, and his argument is, well, I did it because I'm, I'm bringing the kingdom of God. He says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come among you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his possessions are safe. That's the demon. But when someone stronger, Jesus, attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. So Jesus' whole ministry was warfare. He was constantly uh, crossing swords with the enemy. And then finally, the, the big battle was the cross. Look down at Colossians 2.15. It says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I thought in the cross Jesus was the public spectacle. Yeah, but in the moment of his greatest defeat and weakness, at, his, at, at the, the nadir, so to speak, of his ministry, was actually the highest point. That's when the enemy was crushed. Or look at the, the bottom quote. He who does what is sinful, in other words, what that means is he who lives in a continual life of sin is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And, and we could go on and on. But let me just look at one more passage. And it's in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. If, if you want one more warfare passage, good Ephesians 1, verse 18. Ephesians 1, 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul wants us to understand something that we typically don't understand as Christians. I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened in order that you may know three things. Number one, the hope to which he has called you. Two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 19, number three, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So we have a power available to us in this spiritual life. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. Stop right there. You see that phrase, mighty strength? That, those two words in Greek only appear one other place in the New Testament together. Do you know where it is? Ephesians 6.10. When it says, stand strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, in Greek, that's the same two Greek words. So in other words, you're like, so what? In other words, th th there's a direct verbal linkage between this text and our text. The author wants us to look back and remember that it's the same mighty power that caused Christ to conquer that's going to be for us to conquer. Verse 19, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, the spiritual realm, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. There's the same titles. So Christ, through his death and resurrection, has been seated in the heavenly realms above our enemy. Therefore, if we're going to stand firm in the spiritual battle, if I'm going to successfully live the Christian life, I need to get that power through faith in him. I can't do it on my own. I need his power to live this Christian life successfully. I need his strength in me. I need his armor equipping me to fight this battle because I can't do it on my own. And so look at uh, chapter 2, verse 6. We have that power. It says, God raised us up with Christ. When, we, when you became a Christian, you were spiritually resurrected and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So I'm spiritually seated next to Christ. So his authority over the powers of darkness, 
I now share that. I have access to that because I've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Does this make sense? So now, in this spiritual war, I have access to a supernatural power to live the Christian life. Because it's hard to live the Christian life. It's difficult. It's strenuous. It, it, it seems like I keep taking two steps forward and one step back. But I need to trust in his power. And it's only by his power that I'm going to be able to live the life that I need to live against the enemies that I face. Because he's the only one who's ever conquered them. Now I think this is important because what it does is it helps us see the seriousness of living for Christ. Because our tendency in our culture, in my tendency in my own life, is to kind of water down the seriousness of Christianity and say, well, you know, let's not get too serious about this. I mean, you know, church, I mean, church is to help us learn how to be decent suburbanites. You know, people have kids and they send their kids to church because, you know, they want their kids to have some, some morals. And so that's why we go to church, to, to get some morals, because we want some values for our family. You know, we want people to learn to be nice and not to steal and to be decent and to recycle. And, and so we send them to church because we want them to sort of uh, have all these, uh, you know, sort of suburban middle class values. And, but, but, you know, we don't want it to get too serious. I mean, don't talk about heaven or hell or, or the devil. I mean, let's not get fanatical. You know, let's just, you know, kind of have a nice, quaint, inoffensive New England church where everyone kind of, you know, it's kind of, well, it's nice and you're learning things. In other words, let's make church kind of like Barney. Um, <laughs> I, I, I bring up Barney because my, my one-year-old is now uh, into Barney, and it, it, I'm going through this torture again of um, those stupid little songs. And whenever she sees Barney, she, she, only, she has a few words she says, and one of them is Barney. And she yells, Barney, Barney, and she just yells it incessantly for a half hour, and these little kids are singing. It's torture. It really is. And um, so uh, anyway, you know, Barney, Barney's okay. I mean, he teaches you good things. Barney teaches you to share your toys. Barney teaches you to obey the safety rules in the playground. He teaches you kind of helpful, nice things. And I think sometimes we see church as an extension of Barney. That it's like, well, you go to church to learn how to be nice. You, you go to church to learn some good morals. I mean, that's really all it is. It, it's believe in a higher power of your choosing and be a nice person. Be good. And you know, that's really all religion is about. And we water it down like that. But you know what, folks? Satan loves nothing more. Nothing tickles his funny bone more. Nothing gives him more sinister pleasure than to watch people going to hell while they sit on church pews. He loves that. That's the best satisfaction he gets. Because, my friends, it's not about let's be, just be nice. This is a spiritual war. So the first question is, whose side are you on? There's no Switzerland. You've got to pick a side. You're either with Christ or not. And to be not with Christ doesn't mean you have to, again, you don't have to be a Satan-worshipping cult person who goes out in the woods and sacrifices animals and lights candles. You don't have to do that to be with Satan. You can just be you know, do things on your own terms, disobedient, whatever. You see, Jesus didn't call us to be nice. He called us to be holy. And holiness only comes through his spirit. So first of all, whose side are you on? You've got to pick a side. Are you with Christ? And I want to let you know this morning that if anyone here wants to come to Christ, you just have to put your faith in him. Put your faith in his power. Don't trust in yourself, but like it says, in his mighty power. Jesus, you can save me. You can forgive my sins. Yeah, I have a lot of stuff in my past. 
But you died on the cross for every sin I could ever commit. And Jesus, forgive my sins. Pick a side. Come to Christ. He's waiting with his arms open this morning. And then for those of us who are Christians, those of us who have trusted in Christ, and this is for myself here, I need to keep thinking about the Christian life in terms of spiritual war. And I need to realize that when I feel anxious about things, that it's really a spiritual war I'm in. That prayer and Bible study and the way I treat my brothers and sisters in Christ isn't just some secondary issue. It's the heart of the battle. And, and if, if that's the case, I'm going to start thinking about my Christianity differently. It's not just going to be a nice, decent place where I go to church. It's going to be, God, help me! Otherwise, I'm going to get crushed. Lord, help me today to follow you. It's going to be a true dependence upon the power of Christ. And the exciting news is that when you trust in Christ, you can stand firm. This is the exciting news. You actually can do it in Christ. You can stand firm against anxiety. You can stand firm against greed. You can stand firm against uh, lust. You can stand firm against alcoholism. In Christ, you can stand firm in this spiritual battle. It's not going to be easy. Sometimes you're going to fall off and get knocked down. But in Christ, you can stand against this enemy because he has conquered, and we are in him, and he is in us. And so call upon his power. It, it's like at the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep. Uh, <laughs> If I could just go back to that, and then I'll, I need to close here. But um, if you know, that, you know the story, as you can imagine, all these orcs, they just they blow up the wall. They have some like, bomb, and then they climb over the walls with ladders, and they break through, and all the, the men are getting killed. So they run into the tower, and they try to hold the gate, and the orcs break down the gate. So they run into the inner tower. You know, they're just done, and the orcs are just swarming in like a flood. But, but then they remember the promise of Gandalf. If you don't know who Gandalf is, he's kind of this... He's this wizard, uh, and he's, he's really like kind of an angelic Christ figure in the whole mythology of Lord of the Rings. But anyway, he, he made this promise. He says, five days from now, I'm going to come with reinforcements. So watch for me on the morning of the fifth day. And so as the men are, are hunkered down and behind the last door and the orcs are about to burst in, they look and morning is dawning and they remember it's the fifth day. And they say, Gandalf is going to come. And so they say, let's just go. Let's ride out and trust that Gandalf is going to come. And so they get on their horses and they kick down this door, and they just go, fighting orcs. That's awesome. And then they, they like charge out, and there's this, they go down this bridge out, and so you see this bridge where these few guys on horses are fighting against these orcs, and around them are just an ocean of orcs growling. And, and then up on the hill, Gandalf appears. And there, if you haven't seen it, this is an incredible visual in this movie. He's there, he's on a white horse, dressed in white, and, and he has a light around him. And behind him are thousands of Roharim horsemen reinforcements. And they ride down this hill. The hill's about that steep. And, and they ride down this hill. It, you know, it's just totally incredible. And all the orcs turn to fight them. And this bright light shines around Gandalf. And the, the forces of the Roharim just sweep the enemy away. And you know, what a beautiful picture of that is of the spiritual war. That if we will stand firm in Christ, if we will trust in the promises of God and say, I believe God can. I believe that through God's power, I can live the Christian life. By his power, our church can be a godly church. By his power, we can reach the world for Christ. And then go out in faith on that bridge against the enemy and let the Lord come with his deliverance and see his promises fulfilled in our lives and our church. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I just pray that you would help me to take more seriously the spiritual war in which I'm engaged. 
Lord, I, I just confess my lackadaisical attitude toward it, and I, and I know that, that that lazy attitude toward my Christian life is part of the spiritual war, that it's a, a tactic of Satan to make me lulled into a, a decent, inoffensive Christianity. But Lord, I pray that I would see my obedience to you as a war, that I would take it seriously, that we would arm ourselves and stand firm, trusting that you will come to deliver us by your strength. And Lord Jesus, I pray for any Christian here this morning who is just struggling. They're struggling against an addiction. They're struggling against uh, pornography, alcohol, drugs. There are people here, Lord, who are struggling with, with greed, with spending habits, people who are in conflicts with other Christians, and they're struggling with bitterness in their hearts, unforgiveness. Lord, there are some of us here who are struggling with anxiety and fear, and, and we're just like, I don't know the door on Jesus. Lord, we're underneath all these pressures. I pray right now, God, that by your power you would strengthen your saints. Fill them up with the Holy Spirit and help them to stand firm against the enemy, believing that you, O oh Christ, can give the victory. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know Christ. Maybe they've been to church their whole life. But Lord, we know the church doesn't make us a Christian. Only Christ makes us Christians. And so I pray that they would have Christ in their hearts, that they would open up their hearts and accept him. Lord, give us victory. And now I pray, God, would you give us victory on the South Shore. May we see a great revival. May we see the name of Christ lifted up all over the South Shore and churches everywhere. And Lord, we pray then, may that revival spread to the ends of the earth, that we might have a, a missions mindset as a church, that we might see the fields white for the harvest and by his power take them. So Lord, help us, strengthen us, make us your warriors. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.